Hi everyone and welcome to a new episode of The Legal Wolf which was set up to raise awareness of mental health and also challenge the stigma of mental health not only in the UK but around the world. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Mike who is the co-founder and caseworker at Just Us. Hi Mike. Hey well, Steve, how's it going? It's going well thanks, you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, fairly busy but I guess we probably all are at the minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, first of all, just for the listeners, would you be able to give a bit of background about yourself? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I, I work for a little charity in Bedford uh, called Just Us. Um, we've been going about six or seven years, uh, but before that, I kind of started working in the homelessness sector at a local NICE shelter back in 2005. Um, so, I spent five or six years there, kind of ended up managing it. Uh, I then went to work at the local authority. Um, so kind of my, my job was to kind of work with individuals who had been assessed as kind of having complex needs. Often that would involve mental health issues of various kinds. Uh, and I kind of I was sub-regional lead back then of the, the kind of the, the, the No Second Night Out initiative, which was kind of part of the government's promise at the time to end rough sleeping by 2012. So um, I guess that probably says a lot about how effective it was. Um, and then after that, I kind of worked at a, uh, a drug and alcohol service and set up just us in t- uh, 2013, 2014. So, so essentially now, um, my job is effectively to get councils to discharge their duties to homeless people lawfully. So yeah. that kind of involves just supporting people to approach councils and then kind of challenging decisions which are not quite, you know, which which are not sound basically for whatever reason. Okay. And I know in our previous discussion, I was unaware of the link between mental health and homelessness. And there's obviously a clear link there. And would you be able to explain part six and seven of the Housing Act? Absolutely, yeah. So so parts six and seven are kind of the, the parts of the Housing Act 1996, which kind of relevant to, to work with people who are affected by homelessness um, and so part six is is the the law around access to social housing um, yeah. it's diff it's difficult to summarize it because um, the law allows different areas to kind of set their eligibility criteria and their allocations policy um, as they want to to some extent so yeah. so essentially the, the closer you are to London the stricter the the, the, the criteria is for accessing social housing. Um, and then part seven, which is the bit I really kind of, that's, that's, that's the, the part of the law which I do most of my work within, yeah. that kind of concerns the, the duties that are owed to homeless people or potentially homeless people. And I think I'll kind of come on to it a little bit later, but yeah. the, the idea of homelessness within the law is much broader than just uh, people you know, sleeping, sleeping in shop doorways on the high street. Um, it kind of is relevant to people affected by domestic abuse and who can't afford their home and, and, and a number of other issues. So... Um, you know, there, there's there's a couple of hundred thousand people in temporary accommodation in the country because wow. their local councils has accepted they're homeless, and there's probably another couple of hundred thousand people who are homeless but haven't accessed uh, support for whatever reason or have been prevented from accessing support. So it's a major issue, and obviously, you know, uh, your homelessness causes mental health issues, and obviously, it's, it's, it's in some sense sometimes caused by mental health issues. So it's um, yeah, it's kind of a uh, it's, it's definitely inter- interlinked. Yeah, and I know we also discussed previously about the five-part test, which is within yes. the Housing Act. Would you be able to explain to the listeners what the five-part test is? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not called the five-part test within the law. It's, I think it's just what everyone, everyone who works with, with, with the law kind of, uh, it's what they call it. Yeah. So, and it, it's basically remained unchanged since 1977. So there was a lot of fuss a couple of years ago when the Homelessness Reduction Act came out. Um, you know, again, because it was kind of touted as, you know, as, as kind of part of the solution to homelessness. Yeah. And it, and it, it, it added a lot of duties to, to put a lot of duties on councils to do extra work, not much of which did any good. So, so this five-part test is essentially, you know, it's the bread and butter of, of our casework, and it's the thing which gets people housed. So you know, the five parts are, you know, it's, it's essentially, you know, five hoops you've got to jump through to get, um, to, to, for there to be the, duty, the main duty to, to house someone from a council. Um, so the, the test would be, so the first question is, are they actually homeless? The second test would be, are they eligible for assistance, which is something like the idea of recourse to public funds, but not exactly. Um, third part is probably the most complicated bit, which is about priority need, um, which I'll, I'll kind of talk a little bit more in some more detail in a minute. Yeah. Uh, fourthly, you've got local connection. And then uh, lastly, you've got intentional homelessness. So that's if, if effectively, if, if you meet all, if you jump through all those five hoops, as I say, the council will have a main homelessness duty, you know, they'll have to provide settled and suitable accommodation to you. But even if you just pass, or even if you kind of pass the first three of the, that five-part test, the council will have a duty of some kind to house you and actually the threshold is even lower which will kind of look at how that works as well so so i mean there's a kind of a couple of myths which are always out there councils might say to someone approaching them oh really sorry you've got no local connection here you need to go back to your home area which is not lawful it's kind of you know local connection isn't doesn't come into that kind of initial assessment okay. and the same thing with intentional homelessness so again people are told you know really sorry you're intentionally homeless there's nothing we can do that's not that's not strict. Well, it's not true in any 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 sense, and as I'll kind of try and explain in a minute, um, it's very difficult to be intentionally homeless, and there's a lot of, of leeway, if that's the right word, for people affected by health issues. Um, so that um, you know, if someone's got an assessed mental health issue or substance use issue, that would need to be taken into account as to why that person became homeless. So. Um, I mean, yeah, would, would it help for me just to go into, just kind of pick those those five parts uh, apart a little bit, Steve? Yes, it would, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, so yeah, that, okay, so going back to this kind of initial question of, of whether someone's homeless, as I've said already, it's, it's a lot more than just not having a roof. So, obviously, people rough sleeping would be homeless. Um, but there will also be people, for example, who are staying in night shelters or women's refuges would be homeless. Um, you've got people where... Essentially, the, the kind of the legal definition would be if it's probable that remaining in your home would lead to you being subject to domestic abuse, then you would be homeless. So the point being that you can have a pers- perfectly decent home, you know, everything's good about it, except for the fact that you are at risk of domestic abuse or other abuse. Um, and that would mean that you're, you're legally homeless, so you can approach a council for help, even if you haven't actually fled yet. So, you, you know, you don't need to pack your bags before you go to a council to ask for help in that situation. Um You've also got people who can't afford their rent, and there's kind of, you know, there's a, one of the things we're going to talk about today is kind of the universal credit and the potential that it's going to go down again in April. Yeah. Um, so I'll talk more about that there, but but basically there are obviously lots of people who are having to top up their rent from their, the kind of living out element of the universal credit payment, and again, that would, in that situation, that would mean that they are legally homeless so they can approach a council for help. And you've also got... Um, it's quite a high threshold for this, but where, where someone's disability has been making, it's been made significantly worse by their living conditions. Um, so there was a, a, a case, for example, back in 2018, um, 
Lomax for Gosport where the lady, she had some physical health issues, but she also had depression and that depression was kind of, had deteriorated to a point where it would kind of be, be qualified as, as a disability under the Equality Act. And essentially the, the sense of isolation she had in her home because she was miles away from her family, um, she couldn't get out because of these mobility issues. That, that essentially the judge eventually, when it got to the judge, the judge said because this, this lady's got a disability and because the disability had been made worse by her current living circumstances, yeah. she was homeless, therefore she could approach Gosport for, for help for housing where her family actually were. So they, so she was able to kind of effectively be rehoused closer to her family. Um, and then you've got a couple of kind of weird and wacky ones. So, for example, where you've been illegally evicted, you'd be homeless. So even though you've got a tenancy, um, you know, you just can't access it. That would, that would make you homeless. And there's a kind of, again, kind of kind of things we tend to see in our work sometimes you have perpetrators of domestic abuse who um they'll have like a court order that means they can't stay there and there's a few even more obscure ones which i probably won't bore you with tonight but um yeah they could yeah essentially i mean one thing i haven't said yet is that the um there's statutory guidance on homelessness is called homes code of guidance you can google it it's the first thing that comes up and that basically lays out really clearly and in a really you know kind of well-structured way how these different kind of aspects interlink. So that's homelessness. Eligibility. Um, when we deliver training on this, I kind of, I, 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 there's a bit of a cop out because it's, it's, it's vast and it's kind of ever changing with Brexit and everything. So yeah. in that kind of situation, if, if someone, yeah, if someone is maybe subject to immigration control or they're not habitually resident in the, in the UK, they would potentially, well, they wouldn't be eligible for assistance under the housing act they would still be eligible potentially under the care act or kind of other other kind of um, areas of law um but in that case essentially the, the advice i always give to people is if you're not sure always approach a council for help because it's their job to actually make inquiries and kind of reach that decision as to whether the person is eligible or not um and that's probably worth saying as well actually in fact the, the, to kind of frame this five-part test if someone approaches a councillor and says i want help and gives the council reason to believe that they might be homeless, then that immediately triggers section 184 of the of the Housing Act 1996, which basically puts a duty on councils to inquire into the situation, you know, make inquiries to establish what's going on, and crucially issue any decision they give in writing, because it's the, it's the, it's the written decision that kind of enables you to actually challenge something. One of the big problems with the sector is that people approach councils and they're just you know they're just simply told something you know over the phone or kind of over a desk, and there's no right there's nothing in writing to kind of explain what's what's happened there. So, um, you know that's that kind of that idea of making a homelessness application is simply when you go to a council. It doesn't even have to yeah. be the housing department. It could be social services or kind of another department and say, look, I'm, I'm homeless. Can you help me out? That would trigger that section one eight four duty. Okay. Um, so yeah. So with eligibility, I also just say to people, go trigger a homelessness application. It's then the council's job to actually work out what you know how the law should apply in that person's situation, um, and then thirdly is is priority need, which again there's a lot of myths around there, particularly with mental health issues. So I've heard housing officers say things like, "Oh, you know, it's only depression; you can't be in priority need only with depression," um, which is definitely wrong. It's not, not true, um, but there's the you know the, the kind of idea of um, there's kind of some automatic characteristics, things like being pregnant, yeah. um, having dependent children. The Domestic Abuse Act is about to mean that if you are homeless as a result of domestic abuse, you will automatically be in priority need. And there's kind of some 
again, some more obscure kind of situations, like if you've just been made homeless as a result of fire or flood, um, which happened lo locally in Bedford over Christmas, where quite a few properties were flooded. Um, yeah. So those people would be automatically in priority need. But when it comes to things like vulnerability around mental health issues, institutionalisation, those kind of things, it's a lot more complicated. Um, there was a big change in law back in 2015 where um, the case kind of was, became known as HOTAC, where the definition became um, if someone is significantly more vulnerable than, a, than an ordinary, healthy and robust person, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, so if someone is significantly more vulnerable than an ordinary and healthy, healthy and robust person, then mm. they would be vulnerable, which kind of was a vast improvement on the previous case law. It's been kind of it's, it's kind of improved further since then. So the, the one the kind of way I when I when I again when I deliver training, the way I kind of break it down was there was a case in um, 20, uh, 2017, I think it was Smith v uh, Harringay, and essentially the way the judgment was given means you can kind of break it down into a three part test, um, and so essentially that that kind of test would look at what harm would this individual suffer if they were homeless. Yeah. Secondly, would an ordinary, healthy and robust person suffer this harm? And number three, would this harm make a noticeable difference to their ability to deal with um, homelessness? So I'll give you kind of a, a, an easy example. Yeah. Worked with someone recently who had osteoarthritis, really severe. You know, he's on, he's on um, morphine medication and gabapentin and whatnot. Um, he, had, he had this uh, arthritis in his hands, his feet and his uh, hips, I think. And so... The question for him, you know, what, would, what harm would he suffer if he was homeless? Well, if he's going to be homeless and, and sort of tramping the streets, he's obviously not going to be able to rest, so his joints are going to get worse, they're probably going to get inflamed. Potentially the cold weather's going to have an impact as well, yeah. and that's most yeah. likely going to result in reduced mobility and, and probably increased pain. And so, you know, that's you know, a nice, simple one. You know, would an ordinary person suffer that harm? Well, probably not, no, because they presumably have healthy joints. And then that, that kind of last... Uh, section of it would be would this harm make a noticeable difference to their ability to deal with the consequences of homelessness well again you know you, you, it's going to it's going to make the health issue get worse which yeah. is going to lead to more pain and, and kind of make it more difficult so that's kind of a nice easy physical health issue it becomes more difficult with mental health issues but again you can use that same framework so i don't think there's really any mental health issues under the sun which are not going to be made worse by homelessness yeah so even you know there's a, a really a really interesting case called thomas v lambeth same year as smith v Harringay, and it actually gives a better breakdown of, of the definition but it's it, it was only county court so it doesn't hold quite so much weight um but there you had you know miss thomas she had um you know she had depression it wasn't you know, the judge makes the point that it wasn't at the extreme end of depression but it was manifesting itself in kind of suicidal ideation and kind of real anxiety and stuff like that and as a result of that you know the, the idea that actually if she became homeless this depression and anxiety was going to get significantly worse and that was going to lead to this potential risk of suicide or, or kind of you know self-harm or whatever yeah. that was enough to mean that she was in priority need so there's a huge, huge amount more to it than that again within the code of guidance there's examples of people like you know for example people who've been in the forces uh, people fleeing domestic abuse kind of historically um you've got people who have been in care as a child and there's kind of childhood trauma um traumatic experiences would certainly be relevant um, and even things like having no experience in managing a tenancy and, and kind of having no support network would also be relevant so as i say there's you know you, you i could talk for hours about all that stuff but that's a very hopefully kind of a useful very brief summary um onto that so and and so if someone just it's probably worth seeing that saying this here 
if someone approaches a council and gives them council reason to believe that they might be homeless, might be eligible, might be in priority need, the council has to immediately secure temporary accommodation for them or, or secure that accommodation is available for them. Um, yeah. And that's really key, you know, particularly, you know, again, in the guidance, it kind of makes the point that people who are being discharged from the inpatient psychiatric unit are likely to be vulnerable. So it should work. The way it should work is the ward contacts the housing team, says, hey, you know, Joe Gloss is getting discharged on Friday. Um, you know, he's going to need housing over to you. And the, the council should secure the accommodations available to Joe Gloss whilst they kind of carry out their longer term inquiries. Um, obviously, that doesn't happen a lot of the time, which is why I've got a job. But um, that's kind of that's kind of how it should work. And then things with, yeah, as I say, local connection and intentionality don't come into that initial duty to provide temporary accommodation. So local connection, without boring you with the real detail, is kind of the idea that, you know, where have you been resident? It's a little bit like ordinary residence within um, social care law. Yes. But it's, it's you know, and, and, you know, it's obvious, obvious reasons for it. Again, there's a few kind of things where, you know, if someone, if someone qualifies for temporary accommodation, even if they don't have local connection, that council has to provide it. And then they'll look to, you know, refer them back to the area where they do have a local connection. So, but they can't do that if that person's at risk of domestic abuse, for example, in that home area. And it's not unusual to work with people who don't have a local connection anywhere because they've just lived, they've, they've never lived anywhere settled, basically, or they haven't lived anywhere recently in a settled location. So, yeah. again, it's kind of, it, it can never be a reason not to help someone. Um, it just might mean that a council can refer you back whilst you're being housed to another area if you hit that. Um, temporary accommodation duty um, and then finally intentional homelessness um, as I said already it's very difficult to be genuinely intentionally homeless there's basically three criteria you have to map, have to meet to be um, intentionally homeless so the first one is have you deliberately done or failed to do something that's resulted in you losing your last settled accommodation so it could be you haven't paid your rent or it could be you've committed ASB or something um, secondly that accommodation must have been available for your occupation, which isn't that relevant. But crucially, thirdly, it must have been reasonable for you to continue to occupy that accommodation. So, again, if someone was evicted, but actually, or someone left accommodation deliberately, but they would they did so because they were fleeing abuse or because they couldn't afford it or something like that, then they wouldn't satisfy that third criteria, so they wouldn't be intentionally homeless. And it go, the guidance goes on to say that essentially. If if some if a if an action or a behaviour arose as a result of a mental health issue or an assessed substance misuse issue or a temporary aberration kind of caused by those kind of things, um, they would not be it would not it could not be held against them so they wouldn't be intentionally homeless. So you know you know we, we probably work with maybe three hundred households um, give or take, um, and. We've only worked with a, with a handful of people who are actually intentionally homeless, but we've worked with scores of people who are told they're intentionally homeless and we had to challenge it. So that's kind of where our work kicks in, is kind of actually looking at, you know, okay, yeah, this person was evicted from a hostel because they urinated everywhere. But then you look into their situation a bit more and realise they had very serious mental health issues, which kind of obviously caused that behaviour. So it's those kind of ideas where um, actually, you know, the law is really good and the law does really, I think, does a really good job of taking into account the effects of mental health issues on people's ability to kind of maintain accommodation. Um, so I think that, you know, that, that is a very much a whistle-stop tour of the, of the five-part test. But crucially, if, if you can pass those, those, those five parts, as I say, the council's going to have a duty to house you in safe accommodation. And, you know, um, 
there's a lot of research around the housing first model, which is the idea that basically no matter how chaotic someone's circumstances are, they're, they're you know, nine times out of ten, they'll fare better in their own place rather than having to go through the hostel system. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I guess that, yeah, that, that should, I think that makes that's pretty common sense kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, most of these, most of the provision available for homeless people is hostels and kind of just places which are not good for your mental health anyway. You know, we work with a lot yeah. of people who go into a hostel fairly healthy and they come out, you know, a couple of years later with you know, long-term mental health issues, potentially substance misuse issues as well which were simply not present before. So, but, you know, I would say that that, that five-part test is really a, is a, is a route out of homelessness for many people, uh, but it's just sometimes you've got to argue with the council to get it for people. So, yeah, as I say, hopefully that's that makes sense to some level at least. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And you obviously provide a very important service in terms of challenging some of these applications when they're told that they're what intentionally homeless yeah and i mean yeah. e even the phrase intentionally homeless i mean no one intentionally goes out their way to be homeless because there are many factors that can contribute to that as you've said with not paying the rent not paying the mortgage obviously covid's had a big impact i imagine yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, on the whole system in terms of people struggling to meet and just meet the thresholds in order to pay all the bills. Um, and the one thing that I'm interested in is around the hierarchy of the diagnoses within mental health which kind of threw me a bit when we spoke before recording the podcast, in that they are essentially ranked. Is is that true? Yeah, in practice it's true. I mean, essentially, yeah. um, I'll be careful with how I kind of phrase the next few sentences, but, but certainly I, I, think, I think a lot of council housing staff um, are given training which is of poor quality and so certainly we've seen training materials where you know it would kind of suggest that you know depression can't be you know it can't lead to being in priority need and you know if someone had schizophrenia that would automatically make them in priority need and so on and so um you know there is this kind of you know within within kind of often within section 184 decision notifications where the where the council officer is explaining why there's you know often why they don't think that person is in priority need yeah. there's these kind of artificial things that are put in there so we saw one recently which was saying you know this guy was, was um prescribed various um uh, painkillers so he was on opioids and he was also on some um kind of antidepressants and, and the kind of officer said well you know none of these medications are psychotropic so he can't be in priority need and it's like well that's not, you know, first of all, half of those medications are psychotropic, but secondly, that's mm. not the test, you know, and, and we saw it again, you know, with that, that Thomas V. Lambert test, it is probably worth Googling, actually, because, you know, again, the, the kind of the housing officer was was kind of basing their decision on um, this kind of moving the goalpost mentality. So yeah. so essentially, you know, the, the, the decision initially was that, oh, you know, she's got these kind of serious conditions, but she hasn't got overnight care needs, as if that's somehow, I think that was actually a different case, but it's kind of that kind of idea of actually, you know, this this person is X, X, Y, and Z needs, 
but they haven't got this other need which is kind of slightly beyond them so that you know so and so there's that kind of mentality of moving goalposts and you know we've seen kind of all kinds of crazy decisions and really perverse decisions sometimes where people who you know i remember one one counselor i went to a, a, a company guy long-term rough sleeper really you know really kind of incredible guy for a number of reasons long-term uh, mental, you know, psychotic mental health issues and he just had his medication nicked when he got beaten up in the park and, and the officer kind of said well you know you're not taking your meds so you must be all right and there's that kind of real kind of perverse mentality of yeah. of just not even seeking to understand these 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 different issues and so as i say it's kind of there's a there's a number of kind of common ways that that people that officers argue that someone's not in priority need and, and 99 times out of 100 they're just flawed and they, they're actually quite easy to challenge you know that kind of sticking to that kind of three-part um kind of test from from smith v harringay it's just really kind of easy when you've got someone with long-term mental health issues you know obviously they are less able to cope with the consequences of homelessness than, a, than a, an ordinary healthy and robust person would be to kind of use the, the the wording of the law so um yeah there, there's a whole yeah there's a kind of whole world of just silly and you know very damaging kind of lines of thinking that um these decision notifications sometimes use yeah, and I think with the officer saying that about the medication and that he must be all right, that kind of contributes to the stigma around mental health and the lack of awareness that people have and lack of education to an extent that they have around what mental health is. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I remember accompanying someone um, about, about sort of 18 months ago, I think it must have been, and, and, and essentially we had a bit of time to plan for the, you know, plan, plan for the approach because they, they got some time before they were actually going to be homeless. So we in that time, we kind of got together a whole load of evidence from her, you know, kind of CPN, a psychiatrist, and, yeah. you know, long, pretty much every bit of information the housing officer could probably need to know. They would, you know, clearly, clearly suggest that she was vulnerable if she was going to be homeless. And, you know, essentially the officer said, "Yeah, I know, but but so, so what? You know, what's you know, she, you know, you've got bipolar disorder, or whatever it was. You know, you know, does it? Why, why does that? Why, you know, why does that make a difference to you when you're homeless? And that kind of real kind of almost like willful ignorance. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's um, it's quite it's just, you know, a lot of the people we 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 kind of talk to as as they've got housed." They often identify that, that that interview with a housing officer is often the lowest point of their journey out of homelessness, where they're literally, you know, that even if they've got kind of black and white evidence of something, the officer would just say, well, you know, that, that doesn't make any difference to you, isn't it? That, you know, you just need to snap out of it or something, you know, something along those kind of that sort of thinking. So it's, it's quite horrible, you know. So I think it's, you know, we, we, we advise people never go, never to go to a council on their own because those kind of yeah. um, offices are not terribly rare within the sector, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, would you advise them to go with someone that they know well or if they've been in a mental health hospital, go with someone who's nursed them? I mean, what, what kind of people would you recommend that they go and see a housing officer with? I mean, it's, it, it, it's so since legal aid got kind of... Um, cut significantly sort of 10 years ago yeah. it, it, it was previous to that it was reasonably straightforward to get a solicitor it's much more difficult these days um and so you know I, I think it's obviously if you've got somebody who's sympathetic to your case i think it's obviously good to go with them but we've certainly seen you know one of our um recent kind of compensate compensation payouts was for a guy he he'd attempted suicide twice and came very close both times 
and, and you know the, the the medical evidence was just overwhelming. You know, consultant psychiatrist saying if this guy's homeless, he's going to obviously become suicidal again. You know, there was there's four different consultants involved in the in the case, and he went to the council with a mental health worker, but the, because the mental health worker didn't have that kind of grounding in 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 homelessness law. They just kind of took what they were told at face value, which is not, you know, it's not, you know, it was not their fault for doing so. They, they, they probably reasonably expected the housing officer was going to tell them the truth. But ultimately, I think unless you kind of, unless you kind of have a reasonable grasp of the law and unless you're willing to challenge these kind of poor decisions, you know, it's very easy to get rolled over. And, and you know, I've, I've certainly been to many different kind of meetings where, you know, I, essentially my knowledge has been no use there at all. It's been a case of having to go out, go away and kind of complain later and, and try and kind of get the council to, to to change their mind on something. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think in our situation, go with someone if you can. But ideally, you do want someone who has got a good grounding in that, that kind of basic five-part test and kind of has a has a good grasp of how they can evidence someone being vulnerable, um, which doesn't have to be a lot of evidence. I mean, we you know, we often just write to a GP and say, look, you know, if this person became homeless, what do you think would happen to them? And often, if the if the GP gives a reasonable amount of information about that, that's usually enough to, to, to kind of prove it to the to the housing officer. Yeah. And now moving on to COVID nineteen, how has COVID nineteen affected your job? Have you seen an increase in your workload? It's been very interesting. Um, at the moment, it's actually been a fall. Um, so when wow. when COVID when lockdown initially started, we had a kind of spate of people who've been sofa surfing for a long period of time and, and they weren't able to, you know, the, the person they were with was shielding or whatever, and they had to kind of find somewhere else. So we had a, we had a kind of a, a few people in that kind of situation. We had quite a lot of referrals from the police around domestic abuse. And again, I think that was because there was, you know, a lot of stuff in the press at the time about, you know, the, the fact that this, this lockdown is going to lead to more domestic abuse. So I think that, that almost gives people permission to go and ask for help in that situation. Yeah. Uh, but incidentally, I think we're going to see the same effect as the domestic abuse that comes in in a couple of months. Um, then we had, we're, we're, yeah, we kind of, there, there was basically, um, because the evictions have, have kind of been halted for all intents and purposes, and it's not, it's not quite clear what's actually happening at the moment with that. So, so the kind of now landlords have to give a six month notice. But I think even when that start, those kind of cases start getting to court, I my guess would be is there's going to be a huge backlog, and I think judges are going to be very, you know, very reluctant to evict people who you know are, are kind of in kind of of no fault of their own or in those situations. So I, I mean, I, I you know I don't know. Judges obviously have to follow the law, but. I think there's going to be a lot of sympathy for people who are becoming homeless, particularly for the first time. So I think we're kind of we're we're tracking a lot of cases at the moment who, you know, the eviction process is is continuing, um, and at some point we're going to see, um, you know, I think we're going to see potentially a real kind of a, a, a tidal wave of people who've never been homeless before, unless the government, you know, so far the government has done a good job in protecting people from that. So I think there is also a good chance that the government is going to you know, continue to, to kind of protect most people from those evictions. Um, but it's going to become increasingly difficult because obviously landlords, they have a right to that rent rent or whatever it is. And so eventually it's going to, I think things are going to kind of come to a, you know, come to a, some sort of outcome, which is, yeah, potentially going to make a lot of people homeless. Um, and then we've also got this um, potential universal credit change in a couple of months. So, um I said, I said, kind of mentioned before that if someone can't afford their rent or their mortgage, 
then they would be homeless. Now, that doesn't mean that the council would put them in temporary accommodation. It just basically means the council would be able to access a fund that would potentially top up their income to be able to cover it. Yeah. And so when COVID hit and the kind of the, the you know this, this universal credit rate was increased significantly, suddenly lots of people who had previously just not been able to you know afford their rent from their housing element of the universal credit suddenly were. If that now returns to, to those pre-COVID levels, you're going to see effectively. I, mean, I, I don't know how we, we're looking at hundreds of thousands yeah. of people who are who are overnight suddenly no longer going to be able to afford their rent because. Again, we, you know, there's a really good art, um, bit of work done by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism about 18 months ago, and they actually they focus on Bedford and one of their stats. So basically, I think um, out of all the two bed properties in in Bedford available to rent, um, which I think was you know several hundred, only one of them was affordable on the kind of local housing allowance level. So you know, no affordable housing is 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 already so difficult to come by. If these universal credit levels go back down again, then essentially you're going to be making hundreds of thousands of people homeless, as I say. And in one sense, you think, okay, well, maybe the government won't do it, but they did it already back in 2011 with austerity. Yeah. So even back then, councils come with screaming, you know, you're going to be making hundreds of thousands of people homeless, and we're going to have to pick up those pieces. Um, but certainly 10 years ago, they weren't listening to that that argument. So um, I think it's, it's, it's a real big concern uh, going forward. Yeah, it is. And... I know the government hasn't come out of this pandemic particularly well, but one of the things that they obviously did do was increase the universal credit, which for for a Conservative government is probably one of the last things that you would think they would do. And obviously the votes in April 2021, so April this year... If it were to go the the wrong way and they were to reverse their decision previously, do you feel that there would be an uproar and it wouldn't necessarily be an uproar from the people you may expect, but obviously people who are living in fairly big houses, furlough, they rely on the universal credit to top up their wages. There's going to be a pretty big backlash, isn't there? Um, I think I think if there is going to be an uproar, it's going to be, as you, as you say, from that kind of group of people who, yeah. you know, up until last year were, you know, kind of taxpayers and kind of, you know, held a certain standing with, with kind of politicians and, and stuff. I mean... You know, I, I, I would say without without that, I think there's very little chance of an uproar. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I've often kind of compared um, the way councils gatekeep and the way they kind of make these perverse decisions, which affects hundreds of thousands of people every year yeah. and, and obviously causes a lot of harm. I would, I, would kind of, I would kind of compare that at least to, you know, the Rotherham abuse scandal where kind of everyone knew about it. So everyone, you know, everyone yeah. in the homelessness section knows it happens. And yet it's kind of tolerated because at this point it's actually kind of cheaper for councils to, to gatekeep and then get caught rather than actually house people. So I think I think without that kind of, you know, that kind of different section of, of voters being affected by it, I think there's going to be very little chance that anyone's going to bat an eyelid, basically. Um, I think there's there's still not a huge amount of sympathy for, for people affected by homelessness. It's still, you know, the, the kind of mentality is often it's there, it must be their own fault. And actually, you know, I've kind of said already, very few people... Could, could be held responsible for, for them being homeless. I mean, the most the most kind of um, common 
reason we see, and it's not very common still, is perpetrators of domestic abuse, you know, where actually, you know, very clearly they've done something which, does, you know, they, they deserve to no longer be able to live there um, kind of thing. But, but for most people, it's just it's just not, yeah, it's just, it's the system, you know, but, and yet we've got a whole support se- sector, which is kind of, it frames everything in terms of all oh, these these people with support needs, we need to get some support workers to kind of sort them out. And it's just, you know, the fact is that the LHA didn't cover their rent, so they got evicted. It's not it's not that they were bad at finance stuff or budgeting or anything. It's, it's all, you know, I mean, something I haven't mentioned is probably worth saying is that when the benefit cap kicked in, we, we were seeing families, they would lose £800 a month from housing benefit and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, they'd lose their flat or their house and then they get told that they're intentionally homeless. Um, obviously, they're very obviously, they're not intentionally homeless in that situation. No. But it is kind of, you know, there would be very little sympathy for families in that situation. You know, we've seen really kind of horrible examples where, you know, families were having to kind of sofa surf at different extended family members' homes. Kids were in sort of five different schools every year and just horrible situation, all caused, you know, all by sort of saving saving the public purse a little bit of money. Um, But there's that kind of, you know, that that kind of lack of sympathy, I think, continues really. Um, It's it's very sad to see. Yeah, and... (laughs) How could we reduce the stigma around homelessness? What would your advice be in how we can reduce that? Because there is clearly a stigma there around homelessness. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, I think part of the reason is the first thing people tend to think of, and understandably so, when you think of someone who's homeless, you immediately think of that you know that rough sleeper or that person begging on a high street. And actually, you know, the fact is there are far more homeless children, legally homeless children in England than there are, you know, ever are people sleeping rough. So wow. so I think that kind of idea of that hidden homeless is just really just kind of, you know, it's just not known about. So I think, you know, one sense kind of making that, that's an argument I use if, if people start whinging about, um, you know, the homeless or whatever. I kind of say, well, you know, like most of the homeless people in, in Bedford are actually kids, you know, just in, in, in large families and temporary accommodation has stuck there for, for the foreseeable. Um and 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 even you know and and it's in one sense it's been done and I don't know how you can how it can be done better but kind of making the point actually the vast majority of people who do present as rough sleeping and kind of those kind of entrenched and um, socially excluded groups the majority of them are you know they they basically experience very significant trauma during their lives you know usually in childhood but not always but but yeah. almost without exception people have got very, you know, very have had to endure incredibly difficult things and often with very little support network. So I think, you know, that kind of, you know, I, I don't think there's really any any kind of good reason to to kind of think ill of homeless people. But no. um, again, it's, you know, people people have got a lot on their plate at the moment, I guess, generally, and, and probably don't have a lot of time or bandwidth to kind of consider those kind of ideas. And it's, it's obviously very easy to kind of blame blame you know the odd homeless person who's antisocial or whatever and, and begging and stuff and, and so i think it's uh, you know I, unfortunately i don't think much can be done about it really um, i think it's just part and parcel of, of saying the stigma against mental health issues i think mm. it's a very slow kind of ocean liner that needs turning it'll take a very long time to do so it can be done over the, i guess over decades it can be done but yeah but to kind of do it quickly i think it's very difficult i mean one of the topics that i've mentioned on previous podcasts is about getting a module regarding mental health on a national curriculum and you put it into primary schools so you educate primary school kids on mental health 
would it also be beneficial to have a module regarding homelessness to educate people and then the next generation that's brought through will have less of that stigma around mental health homelessness do you think that would be something that would be implementable I, th I think yeah I, mean, I think that's, that's actually a, a, a very good way to look at it in terms of that kind of long-term generational kind of take on it yeah um i think yeah I, th I think absolutely i think it's i mean in one sense you know certainly a lot of the literature we read at schools you know often has these kind of themes of, of kind of poverty and homelessness in there uh, mm. and i think you know that's probably may yeah you know, that may well already have quite a significant influence i think i think you know i think there's I think I guess it's kind of a case of how do you how do you tackle such a complex issue? And I guess the same yeah. same problem for kind of doing doing kind of covering mental health at schools. But yeah, I think um, I, I just wonder if maybe you know maybe that kind of that idea of kind of um, anti-oppressive kind of view, views can, you know in general can be challenged and kind of kids can be you know I, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do it. Mars is yes, I think it's a good idea. How you actually work it out and practice it, I think, is more more difficult. And I think. Yeah. I would say, you know, most schools, probably most classrooms have got, or certainly most year groups would probably have at least one or two people who are legally homeless, even in kind of leafy suburbs. And again, you know, when you, when you start talking about homelessness in terms of domestic abuse, that number jumps up very drastically. So, yeah. and those are the kind of things I think it's good to tackle. You know, you know, again, there's far more victims of domestic abuse who are therefore homeless than there are people, you know, kind of causing a bit of fuss on the high street. So... Um, I think it's those kind of consciousness raising kind of exercises, which I think you know you certainly could get a kid to kid to kind of understand. Certainly, my kids are sort of ten and seven, and I think they they have some very interesting kind of questions to ask and really good ways of looking at those kind of issues. So yeah, yeah I think I think yeah, that could be a, a very good way of doing it, a very interesting way of doing it. Yeah, I, I think it's probably more as you've said. It sounds good in theory, but trying to implement it in practice may cause more challenges. Um, but my final question, which is normally a light-hearted question, um, and I've had multiple answers to this question, um, is what would your dream job be, and why? <laughs> um, yeah, probably not in this sector. <laughs> um, I do, you know, I, I do, I do find the work very. Um... You know, I, I don't dread working or anything like that. But for me, I think certainly something far more creative. Um, you know, or kind of, uh, I kind of do, you know, woodwork and kind of a little bit of stuff like that. So I think, I think, I think something that's just kind of me on my own, just yeah, just doing doing a project and kind of blocking out the world. Probably, um, I don't think I could do it in practice, but that's certainly something that's easier um, than uh, than this kind of work. It can be quite quite um, challenging a lot of the time. Yes, no, I'm sh I'm sure it can be, Mike. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on, and I hope the listeners have found that insightful and have learned something from the discussion around homelessness and link to mental health. Um, and as I say, thank you for being a guest on the show. No, thanks very much for having me, Steve. It's, it's been really cool to, to be here, so thank you. And that concludes today's episode with Mike discussing all things mental health and homelessness and the link between the two. Please feel free to leave a review if you liked the episode and also follow the Legal Wolf Instagram and LinkedIn page to stay right up to date with the latest episodes being released. Thank you.